from Rare Cancers Australia, you're listening to Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. It's important to keep friends and family close. Quite close to the, the end was, was that realisation that, you know, she, she wasn't going to revive it. And she was such a fighter. But I, I remember just a very short period before she died, she just said, I'm, I'm just, I've had enough. That was Adam Lynch, the founder of Beat Bladder Cancer Australia. Their mission is to not only increase community, GP and health professional awareness for bladder cancer, but to also provide support, advance bladder cancer research, diagnosis and increase treatment options. Like our first episode with Richard Vines, Adam founded Beat Bladder Cancer Australia after a personal experience with the disease. A reminder to our listeners that whilst you may be one of only a handful of people with your cancer in Australia, added together, all those rare and less common cancers make up a community of tens of thousands of people here in Australia. If you or your caregiver ever need to speak to someone, our specialist cancer navigators are here for you. Reach out on 1800 257 600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Helping share Adam's story today is RCA's Dr. Emily Isham. Hi, I'm Dr. Emily Isham and welcome to Radio Rare. Today, we're talking to Adam Lynch, father of two children, 15-year-old Noah and 13-year-old Manon, and founder of Beat Bladder Cancer Australia. My name is Adam Lynch and I'm 50 years old now. The reason I'm sort of talking today is my, my wife, Anna, she was diagnosed with bladder cancer in July 2016 and she had a, a pretty tough 14 month battle with uh, bladder cancer and unfortunately she passed away in September 2017. Uh, at the time, we we had we had two children, a boy and a girl, and at the time they were twelve years old and, and ten years old. It was obviously uh, an incredibly tough time. Anna was uh, she was a nutritionist, and she was the picture of of health, uh, both in in what she did, in terms of what she ate, in terms of what she believed in, and she was very much being and not doing, and she would spend a lot of time just being appreciating the things around her and, and not rushing from, from one thing to, to the next. So, so when we got the news in July 2016 that she, she got bladder cancer, it was obviously like a, a sledgehammer as, as it must be to, uh, to all, all people who are diagnosed with an illness like that. Unfortunately, it was a very aggressive and rare form of, of bladder cancer and Immediately once she had the, the biopsy, within three weeks, she had her bladder removed fully because uh, they, they needed to act extremely fast. And the emotional journey, obviously there was a, there was a, a medical and physical journey, but the emotional journey was, 
It was very difficult for us with, with the children. Obviously, finding the right time to, to say the, the things to, to the children without scaring them un- unnecessarily, but at the same time to, to keep them informed and tell them the truth about, about what was happening to their mum. And they were, they were fantastic um, through this. We all sort of helped one another, and fortunately we've got a close family unit with, um, with other family members as well, and we all sort of pulled together. I, I remember it being a very weird sort of experience because we would, we would go to each of the doctor's appointments, and I must say that we had the best medical um, care ever. We, it, it, everything was fantastic, but we jumped from bad news to bad news. And we just couldn't get on top of um, on on top of the, the cancer. She had a bladder removed. We thought that the, the, the cancer had, had gone, and then three months later, it had metastasized and was was in her lymph nodes. And she needed chemotherapy and then immunotherapy. So it, it, we just sort of jumped from worst case scenario to worst case scenario. And and it was it was this emotional sledgehammer that we that we got each time. And then and then quickly turned into the focus on getting better. So okay, well let's let's try and beat it. Let's let's get into it and, and just just do what we can to you know for you to get better, Anna. And then we get the next bit of news and then we get that the next emotional low and, and then we it'll be the focus on the next thing. So, and then of course you get other people's emotions and that, that's always challenging and difficult as well where friends and families would see Anna and, and, and you get there, they get upset and their emotions would bounce, bounce back on you and that would take you back to that emotional low that you had sort of overcome a little bit as you were trying to battle things. But at the same time it's really important because it was, it was important to keep friends and family close quite close to the, the end was was that realization that the um, you know she, she wasn't going to revive this. And I remember at the time it was it was it was probably only a couple of weeks before she passed away. And she was such a fighter as as all people who have, you know, cancer and advanced cancer are but I, I remember just a very short period before she died, she just said, I'm I'm just I've had enough. She would say, I, I, just, I just can't do this anymore. That kind of getting up and trying to fight it and fight it and fight it. She just, and at that point, she sort of mentally made that, that decision that, that that was it. She sort of knew physically and, and mentally that that was probably the end. Adam, that sounds extraordinarily tough. Can you tell us what it was like to go from having a healthy wife to suddenly being the carer of a very sick wife? How did your role change? My experience was, I always use the term we. Whenever people ask about Anna's journey and what happened, I always find myself talking about we did this, we did that. That's how it was. So everything that was told to us by the doctors and you know, I, I just it was always about what, what we had to do to beat it. For me it, it was that same emotional roller coaster. It was hearing the news and trying to be there for Anna and trying to help her digest the news that that, that we had just heard. 
and then work out what we needed to do, both emotionally and um, physically. It was about being that person who dealt with family and friends and kept them informed on how things were and at the same time protecting Anna a bit from being overwhelmed by people wanting to see her and um, people wanting to do things for her and, and, and looking after the children and trying to keep it as normal as we possibly could for them. They needed to go to school, they, then they had their, their routine, and, and we, we also wanted to keep them their life as normal as possible in, in a world that wasn't normal anymore. And I think I think we we managed to do that reasonably well. I, I, I was so proud of, of the children and how they, even though only 12 years old and 10 years, how they coped, um, how they were there for their mum and um, you know, how they helped how they helped her through this. I was working full time through a lot of this. The company I worked for were extremely um, helpful. They gave me a lot of time off and flexible hours and um, to uh, focus on the priority, which which was obviously Anna. And, and I needed that work a bit as well. I, I needed the ability to get away from the house, get away from the intensity of, of all of all of this, and 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 as much as I could sort of forget and, and have that kind of structure outside of outside of Anna's journey. And that was helpful and but not overwhelming because I say work was, was great. So but I spent most of my time with Anna but I still had that outlet which was work, but also sort of doing exercise and that kind of thing, just so that I I, I kept balanced as well. For all those listening it is so important for a carer to engage in some kind of activity which provides distance from their role and some refreshment. Adam, you mentioned before that you both possessed a fighting attitude throughout the medical processes, but in those last few weeks, when Anna decided she'd had enough, how did you cope with that? That was a real sort of a real key point in that whole journey because I think up until that time although the health was deteriorating it was clear that it was getting worse there was nothing which was working then we'd always spoken positively and and we were still trying everything and um, doing what we could and, and she was still very much that how can we beat this so to hear her say that was was very difficult like a lot of things once you once you mentally made that choice then then physically you follow very quickly afterwards it was difficult but it was again it was we were all part of this together it wasn't a shock to me when she said that it was all too much and she just had enough and and she just wanted wanted it to be over and the, the one thing I, I would say is that when people sort of talk about how you cope with, with someone you love dearly passing away, I always say that the, the worst scenario for me would have been if, if she had gone off to work or whether she'd gone out and she got killed in a car crash and you hadn't had the chance to say goodbye, you may have left on an argument and suddenly you hear this news that you're never going to be able to, to see or speak to that person again. Whereas with with cancer, and although Anna's journey was wasn't a good one, it was a sh- relatively short fourteen months, and she deteriorated quite quickly. We had time to talk. We had time to be together, both with me, with the kids, with with family, with friends, and we we had the opportunity to say goodbye. So there was 
there was nothing there which which was left unsaid, which when I look back now i I'm so yeah, I'm so happy about that. Just really happy that we were able to say what we needed to say and and do those nice things that we that we that we could do and just just be together. So that was that was a real sort of positive in 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 the memories that we have of Anna. And the thing that I look back and on now and some of the details obviously fade over time. And but the the thing that will stay with me and will will, will haunt me for forever are those images where you're seeing someone that you that you love so dearly physically deteriorate in front of your eyes that person that you you knew before as they get sicker and they lose weight and you know they're not the same person that that, that they were and it's it's those images that that are um you know quite quite challenging and of course they will they will stay with me forever as well the two children and then I were in were in her arms when when she passed away, which which on one side was very difficult, but on another side was was beautiful because it was peaceful and and, and we were there. So that was that was actually a really special moment and one which I would have hated to have, have missed, having spent so much time with her in in, her, in the lead up to that. Yeah, because like you said, you know, those moments are so precious. But at the same time, nothing can really prepare you for seeing a loved one deteriorate, can it? You have these images from the media of people with cancer. But when it's your own loved one, it hits so much closer to home and it opens up emotions that you thought you might be prepared for because you thought you knew the cancer world from that media exposure. There's a big difference between what you see in the media and what you hear. And so many people get cancer and normalize it a bit bit because a lot of people are getting it. But there's a huge difference between that and and being in a hospital room with your wife when she dies. Spending that time during those weeks where, where you know, you get to a point where you know that that she, she, she wasn't going to survive became very real. And then having to bring your children through that journey as well is, is something which we're completely unprepared for. But at the same time, just the closeness of the family and, and the fact that we were so emotionally connected as, as a family meant in a way that it was quite natural and, and peaceful and not too confronting. It, it, def- it definitely it definitely changed our world forever. I bet it did. And what changed for you? I definitely have changed my my lifestyle. So I finished work with the company I worked for uh, prior to Anna passing away, and since then I I haven't gone back into into full time work. And it's interesting the at the moment with with all of the, the COVID nineteen going on and there's a lot of talk about how people are beginning to appreciate the simple things in life because we've been forced to with, with the self-isolation and, and there's always a trigger for that kind of thing and, and for most people at this time it's COVID-19. Now that trigger for me came with with Anna passing away and 
my priorities changed overnight from that world that we all get stuck into, which is around material things and what we possess and what holidays we go on and all that kind of thing to actually spending quality time with the people you love and doing things that uh, that you are truly passionate about. And and that, that trigger was very, very strong. And although that comes with, with a, you know, financial implications and the uh, quality of, of, of life, then the, the important things are for me now and, and will be forever is, is spending time with the people you love and, and, and then doing things that you want to do as opposed to doing things that you feel that you, you kind of need to do. And that's very, very strong in, in how I feel and how, how, and how I'm, I'm raising the children now. Then having to look after you know the children as well and and so what i what i found in actually is and it's, it's quite interesting you suddenly have to become the mum and the dad and the way the way i thought previously when i was just a dad is quite different now from when i think as a mum and a dad so now i you know i might i have to think of sort of the risk involved of doing something whereas before as a dad i would just go yeah of course i'll do it yeah that's fine and not even think about the implications whereas now i go well hang on if i do this what happens if i break my leg or then then we're stuffed and who's going to look after us all and i also think or even things like what are we going to have for dinner tonight i never used to think that but now in the mornings i have to think that and and so you, you change and you become you become much more grounded as a person because you you're thinking as a mother and as a father and and that takes time but it's it's i've really enjoyed that but doesn't necessarily mean that it, it comes naturally and but for me and and for the, for the children it's something i've had to do wow so you've adapted by taking on both parental roles a really different way of thinking A common theme we've found throughout this series is that the time we spend with people we love and doing things we love is invaluable. And so I'm wondering, how did this whole experience shape you? Your support networks of friends and family in other communities, did they change over time? I think during Anna's illness, we gained probably the closeness of, of friendships got tighter and friends, family that maybe we hadn't been in contact with reached out more to us because they, although we perhaps weren't in contact, they were obviously still still very interested and still loved Dana and wanted to know how things were. And so so we, we got in contact with it with a lot of people during that time, which is which is wonderful, albeit quite challenging to manage all of that. And we had a couple of very close friends who who helped us manage that so it just wasn't overwhelming in terms of people phoning up or um, asking for updates and passing messages on or wanting to see Anna and which at the time she, she wasn't able to do just because she physically didn't have the energy for that um, and so we it was a very close emotional period and and similarly for that period after she passed away when when Friends and family reach out and they helped us. They realized that, that I was now on my own and, and probably struggling a bit and had to continue looking after the children. And, and so we had lots of help um, and, and, and requests request for help on meals and uh, you know, just, just the basic things. And, and that was a great help as well. And, and, more, and, and particularly, and just looking back on, on this, the, the thing that was great was when people just, just did stuff. 
lots of people would ask, oh, what can we do? And, and even that was quite challenging because you, you don't want to have to spend time working out what other people should do for you. You just want people to do stuff. So or you want to wake up in the morning and you want to go to the door and someone's dropped off a, a couple of meals for the next few days or someone just comes around and does something rather than, than actually going, you know, trying to field dozens of questions about, hey, what can we do? Just give, give us a shout if, uh, if you want us to do anything, which, which is, is too much to think about. So during that time, it was, it was wonderful. We had, but I, what I did find afterwards was that suddenly, Obviously, people's life, people have their own lives and they, things don't change. And, and so the immediacy of, of Anna passing away sort of, you know, kind of disappears in, in, into the past and, 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 and people move on and get back to their lives, lives. And they don't love you any less, but, but they've got their lives to lead. And what I did find as, as a male in the relationship is that, is that, you know, the woman is usually the, the sort of the social, Social organizer and, and, and a lot of our friends are, are friends that, that are group friends of Anna's and myself. And I found that that's, I think people find it difficult. They, they sort of don't know how to, how to, how to treat you, if you like. They don't know how to talk to you, whether they should invite you around for dinner or invite you around for, to go out for a drink or because they don't know quite how I'm going or, and so I, I did find actually over that next period that, you kind of get left out of stuff because you don't fit in nicely as a, as a couple anymore that can be invited to a dinner party with another three or four couples. It, it's awkward. And so I, I definitely did find that that you sort of get left out a little bit because you, you don't fit in anymore. The focus then is on you having to reach out and that's hard to do. So that was, that was quite, quite challenging in, in that sense. Coming up after these words from our patient support team. There were times during her illness where she said, look, when I get better, I'm, I want to I wanna do something about this because I don't want other people to have to really struggle as much as we've done in, in finding support and finding information and just understanding what to do if you're diagnosed with bladder cancer. Hello, this is Ailey at Rare Cancers Australia. How can I help you today? Hi, I was just wondering if you could help me with. Our specialist cancer navigators can help you with the challenges that come with a rare cancer diagnosis. Our services are free and there is no criteria for accessing support from us. We understand that every situation is unique and no two people are the same. If you have been diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer, our patient support team look forward to hearing from you. Call us on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Welcome back to Radio Rare. Before the break... Beat Bladder Cancer Australia's president, Adam Lynch, discussed his wife's bladder cancer journey and how it impacted their family. Dr. Emily Isham continues the story with how Adam's life perspective shifted. So 
So we've covered a few of the changes that have occurred since your experience with Anna. Your life perspective shifted and the way you think as a parent is more rounded. Your support network altered too. You mentioned before that you haven't worked for a couple of years. What are you doing right now? What I do with my time now is I three priorities the children. That's my first priority. And the second priority is, is looking after my own fitness and health because there's there's no plan B anymore. There's no other there's no other parents. So that's been quite important in making sure that I keep as fit and healthy as possible so that I'm around for as long as possible. And then really importantly and, and this big passion is is we've actually set up a bladder cancer charity called Beat Bladder Cancer Australia. And this was inspired by Anna because there were times when during that 14 months where we thought she might sort of uh, improve and, and, and she was very much of the mind where when she was going through this sickness, she really struggled with um, knowing anything about bladder cancer and knowing where to go to, to, uh, to get information and, and for support. And she, she was quite a proactive person. So. But she still couldn't find things, um, and it was really difficult to to get access to the right information and, and awareness and know where to go to. So there were times during her illness where she said, "Look, when I get better, I'm I want to I want to do something about this because I don't want other people to have to really struggle as much as we've done in in finding support and finding information and just understanding what to do if you're diagnosed with bladder cancer and she obviously wasn't able to, to do that herself, and so that was that was a sort of a legacy of hers was was to set this charity up. And obviously, for the first six months or so after she passed away, then that wasn't a priority for me or for um, you know for, for the team that is now Beat Bladder Cancer Australia um, as we got got our head around living without without Anna. But once we set that, once it was around March two thousand and eighteen where I had a few conversations with a couple of the medical specialists that were involved in Anna's care. And uh, we said, look, let's do something. So we remember having this initial conversation and I just thought, my God, this is this is so overwhelming. There is so much to do and we're, we're starting from a place which is a couple of well-meaning people. Where, where do we go and what do we do? But that was that was where Beat Bladder Cancer Australia was, was born. And that is my job now. And it, I probably spend 30 or 40% of my, my time running um, that charity. So I'm the president of, of the charity. And I'm really proud to say that we've come an awful long way between that first discussion and now in um, in establishing ourselves as a, as a charity, in starting to raise the profile of, of bladder cancer, starting to provide support services for uh, the patients and carers and, and from really getting some energy and some profile momentum around around bladder cancer, which which if you ask people, the overwhelming response we get is, I didn't even know bladder cancer existed, which is a response that you tend to get a lot in the, in the rare, in the rare cancer and, and therefore is a real uh, incentive to actually go and do something about it because that's a bad place to be when actually bladder cancer is in the top 10 cancers and yet nobody knows about it. Gosh, that's incredible. Well done to you. 
That's quite a legacy from Anna. I'm really curious about you saying bladder cancer is in the top 10, yet there is such a dearth of awareness and information out there for bladder cancer. Why do you think that is? Can you please tell us about your organisation? I think the, the lack of awareness of, of bladder cancer, I don't think there's any, any single reason. Clearly, there is an awareness and focus on, on the cancers where, where you have a large number of people diagnosed and where there may be a, a, a higher profile, where there is more research. But I, I don't really know is, is the answer. It's, it's, we haven't really asked that question. We've, we've kind of accepted the fact that bladder cancer has a low profile. And therefore, what do we do about it? We started off as a very much a, a patient-driven organization, and we very much are now. And so we, we went out and asked a number of patients and carers, and, and, and that kind of formed our, our strategy, um, which is threefold. One is first pillar, if you like, of our strategy is, is around increasing community awareness and education and also the profile of bladder cancer amongst the community, but also GPs and, and health professionals. So if we can increase the profile, then people will start to, to understand a bit more and therefore be more open to increasing their awareness and the education um, around bladder cancer. And, and the reason that's our first one is is actually wouldn't it be wonderful if people didn't get advanced stage bladder cancer? Because if we can stop, if we can get people aware and therefore acting quickly when they're showing symptoms, then the chances are that they're able to get the treatment without getting advanced stage, without having to have their bladder removed and go down to, to, to that stage of, of bladder cancer. And so, and, and the great thing in a way, <laughs> about bladder cancer is often the symptoms are quite obvious in that you've got blood in your urine. So it's a, a quite a physical symptom that if people understand that it could be bladder cancer and they act quickly and that the, the GPs are able to do the appropriate test and then pass, pass these patients on to urologists, then actually actually the diagnosis and, and prognosis is, is quite positive. Whereas if we don't have that profile, and often it's misdiagnosed as a UTI, a number of months that pass, and then by then, unfortunately, a number of people do have advanced stage bladder cancer where they need more severe treatment, they may need their bladder removed. And so... That's why that's our goal, because actually our, our first priority is increasing that awareness. And it's relatively in this day and age of digital media and social media, we don't have to raise millions and millions of dollars. We just need to be smart in how we get that message out to the general public, to patients and carers and to medical professionals. And that's what we're working on now with our social media and, and our media campaigns and our website. And that's really satisfying as, as you see that kind of profile starting to, to increase among, amongst the community. And that's, that's, a, that's been really satisfying to see, see that. And then our second focus is on the support services because unfortunately there will always be people that have uh, bladder cancer that um, will need to go through a level of treatment, um, will get advanced stage bladder cancer, will get high grade bladder cancer and, and, and need that support. And so that's, that's where the, the second focus is and, and that really didn't exist specifically for bladder cancer. We started off by going, actually, you know, should we set up a support line and should we, should we set up our own support services and, and then we 
we reach out and we, we find, well, actually, the best model here is around collaborating with other organizations. Why reinvent the wheel when actually there's some great, great, great services out there already, um, particularly when a lot of the support that people need is around emotional and practical support. And that's where collaborations with um, organizations like the Cancer Council and Rare Cancers Australia are wonderful because you already have a lot of the services available now, the skills, the infrastructure, the reputation, the trust of, of patients and carers. Can we complement that by making bladder cancer patients aware of these services and how can we optimize them for bladder cancer? And, and what we found is that suddenly there's a whole range of support services that are available. It's just we haven't really tapped into them and said, hey, these are available for the bladder cancer community. So, so that's been wonderful, that kind of really positive collaboration with, with a number of organizations to make that happen and make that available. What we have done, which is specific to, to Beat Bladder Cancer Australia, is we have started a number of patient and carer support groups and we've now introduced those across all of Australia. We have state a number of state-based support groups which are currently online, Zoom groups which are wonderful ways where people get that person-to-person interaction and, and we have guest speakers in, in there from medical professionals to talk about things ranging from doma care to health to treatment options but at the same time there's a lot of opportunity there to talk about for the patients and carers to talk to one another and share experiences how did you do this oh you've had that treatment already then what should I expect you know that kind of wonderful patient-to-patient sharing of of experiences that is so, so powerful. So there there are two focus areas at at the moment and and it's been wonderful just seeing those grow and seeing the collaboration and recognition of BEAT as, as as a charity increasing and getting out there amongst the, the, the patients and, and carers so that they're not stuck in that world that Anna was in, which was, I don't know where to go to. I, I don't know where to get information and support. Trying to trying to address that um, for, for patients and carers, you know, will be on that bladder cancer journey in the future. That is such a critically important thing to be offering. I think a lot of people have discovered over these last few weeks particularly that a lack of community and isolation is quite detrimental to mental health and confidence and a cancer diagnosis in with that just isolates you from that sense of being normal in your usual community anyway. It just adds to that horrible time at diagnosis when there's no community to support you and no information, and I'm sure especially so in the bladder cancer community before you set up BEAT. I read a quote by Brene Brown the other day that says, I define connection as the energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment, and when they derive sustenance and strength from the relationship. And I think that's just a fundamental part of what you're offering. In providing that community, that sense of being heard, seen and valued in those groups that you're providing and the information that you're giving to people so no one has to find themselves in the situation that you and Anna did at the start. That's certainly what it sounds like. Have you had to fight very hard to advocate along this path? I think the the challenge for us has been 
has been the awareness side. I think the support side has been strong because by then people have been diagnosed with bladder cancer and so they have a reason to want to engage with BEAT because they're already on that journey and and, and therefore they're reaching out and are keen for the support. The, the challenge has been for us around the awareness side because, and I would have been the same, I put myself in, in the shoes. If, if I hadn't had any association with bladder cancer, probably the last thing I would want is a bladder cancer organization to be bombarding me on social media and the like with cancer, cancer, cancer messages. Um, particularly when you're, they're likely, you're likely to get a number of other messages from other cancer types and other illnesses which aren't cancer. And so you're living this world which is busy and challenging and enough already without kind of driving disease messages into, into people's lives. So that, that's been quite challenging is how you make people aware of bladder cancer symptoms without making it too confrontational for people when they don't want to think about cancer. I think the message has got to be quite soft. And so our tagline has been blood, blood in your pee, see your GP. So it's quite a simple, non-confrontational message which highlights the symptoms. It gives a, a, a simple non-confrontational call to action, which is go and get it looked at. Don't don't think that it's all okay. Just go and get it looked at. Uh, but it's 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 how you get that message out there without people backing off because it's it's another disease-based message that that they're, that they're hearing. I have to say that we we haven't really had any severe knockbacks. I've had so much enjoyment working with the team. Got a great proactive patient advisory team. We've got a, a really highly regarded health advisory team which provides us um, advice and direction from a, from a health and medical perspective. And, and along with the fact that people we're dealing with have been so collaborative and positive, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful world. We haven't been hit like some not-for-profits about how do we how do we manage our budgets during during COVID nineteen and because it's all it's all volunteer based so our expenses aren't, aren't high so so all donations and things go directly into all the all the projects that that we're doing. Well, it's really refreshing to hear that. I'm so glad that it's going well. So, how are you and the kids faring at the moment? How's life going for you? This pandemic aside, we. Uh, we never, we never had any form of cancelling during Anna's illness or after Anna passed away. We always felt that with, with the family and friends that we had and the, and the closeness that we had as a, as the three of us, myself and the two children, that, that was the best form of, of, of support that, that we could get. And at the moment, it seems to, seems to have worked. I think we're coping. Well, you never know sort of exactly how things are going, but I've got the most amazing two children who are now 15 and, and 13, and they've got great friends. They are doing, both doing really well at school. They have really good um, uh, sports interests and, and, and uh, activities that they, that they do outside of school. Uh, so the kids, they could seem in, in a really good place and they're just genuinely lovely, lovely children and I'm so proud of them and 
they're obviously living with the fact that they their mother passed away and when they were very young and I'm sure that's going to come out come out at points through their lives and there will be difficult times of course and um but I hope but I, I I hope that is the case in a way because the last thing that we'd ever want is is for us to think well you know hey we're doing okay and 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 slowly the memories of them um sort of disappear and we think about her less and less so we have photos around the house and we you know we always talk about her and funny things she would have done or said and to make sure that that she is always in 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 the front of their mind in in a positive way and we we go on special walks that uh that um that Anna likes going on and so so we you know really keen to to uh to keep her in the minds of the children and myself of course because you know life life goes on and we're all busy people and it's that thing about taking a step back and, and, and remembering and doing the doing the important things and the things you feel passionate about and, and the wonderful memories and I I I feel I personally feel in in a good place, got great relationships with with Anna's family and my family and, and friends and that's all it's all still really, really positive and, and I and I think we're doing okay. There's never been any occasions where we've not wanting to get out of bed in the morning and just feel depressed or angry or whatever emotion that may come out on the back of on the back of, of Anna passing away. It's, it, and I, I, I do genuinely go back to the that time where we had all of that time when she was sick and we spent a lot of time together and we we said lovely things to each other and um, we did we did things that she was able to do and and. And being with her when when she passed away, meaning was that kind of closure a little bit. So I, I really think that 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 left us in in a, as good a place as we, as we can be. And um, and um, I'm I'm proud of Jules, and I'm proud of myself for you know for getting to where we are with with hopefully us all in all in all in a good place. What an incredible story, Adam! Thank you so much for sharing with us today and telling us your story, being honest with us, telling us about your organization, BEAT. It's wonderful that you've started that. And I'm so glad that there's this network out there for those um, diagnosed with bladder cancer, but also an organization that's promoting that much needed awareness about it and teaching the community. So thank you so much for all you do. And to our listeners, thank you as well for putting your time aside to join me for this episode. Keep listening for scenes from our next episode after these words from our patient support team. I'm Dr. Emily Isham, and until next week, bye for now. Our patient support team know that a rare cancer journey is different. We understand it can be hard to find good information, difficult to connect with others in a similar situation and that you might need someone to chat to about everything that's going on. We are here to listen. We understand Rhea and you are not alone. Contact our patient support team on 1800 257 600.
next time on Radio Rare. Dr. Emily will speak with RCA's patient support manager, Christine Coben. Christine shares her experience with cancer and how she came to be a part of Rare Cancers Australia. What I remember mostly about that period is my naivety and I often draw on the experience when I am talking to people who are either newly diagnosed or carers and how little we knew about what we were up against, how little we knew about the questions we should have asked and in fact even what we were looking at, watching mum become sicker and sicker and it was it's very clear to me now what the process of stage four cancer can look like and what in fact was going on in front of our eyes but we really just had no idea at all and I often have to put myself back in that place to remember how much carers don't know and how much they are required to know and what a huge role it is. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Thank you to this episode's guest, Beat Bladder Cancer Australia founder, Adam Lynch. The show is mixed by Alexander Smith, narrative writing by Ailey McMaster, reporting by Dr. Emily Isham. We are edited by Christine Coben and myself, and our episode music is from Audioblocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website, and you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Simply search Radio Rare or Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening and we'll be back shortly with our next episode. Bye for now.